0: Hey everyone, I am excited to announce that Esther, Something Hidden, Something Revealed, is now available on Amazon as a side study, Volume H, in the Gospel Feast series. The Book of Esther is a mysterious one. As written, it is a book with many contradictions. The name Esther means something hidden. It does contain several historical conundrums and a handful of mysteries. It is the only book in the Bible that never mentions God at all. Why? Many Jews today say that it is just fiction, because they can't find any of the characters mentioned within historically. And yet, they celebrate the book with a major festival annually. It is also one of the books that is required reading in the weeks before Passover, every year. Not by God, but by Esther herself. Why do this if you insist the book is just fiction? It is one of the only books that Joseph Smith made no corrections to, although he considered it to be historical. How is any of this possible? Esther reads as an eyewitness account, but then struggles with the simple, logical issues and frequently contradicts itself in some very strange ways. How come? Considering that Esther became the most powerful queen of the world's largest empire, none of this makes any sense. Or does it? Despite the wonderful story, we are left with the puzzling questions Who was King Ahasuerus? Who was Mordecai? Who was Haman? And actually, who was Esther? The answers may just surprise you. The book is not fiction. And in fact, all of the puzzling contradictions were put in place for a very devious reason, and not by Esther. Join us on this astounding historical reconstruction and be amazed at what Esther really tried to do. And how, had she been able to accomplish what she had tried, your life would be very different right now. You think you know the book of Esther? Are you sure? Let's feast on the Word of God together and see what a woman of God can do When she really puts her mind to it, it also might make an incredible Mother's Day gift for the ladies in your life. Happy Mother's Day.
1: This is the Gospel Feast Podcast for those that need a little meat after the milk. It's time to feast on the Word. (laughs) So this is our 21st episode. So in our tradition, every seventh episode, we would be answering questions from our listeners. So we've received a lot of questions and admittedly it had been some time since our last question episode. So we have a lot of questions. Now, uh, looking at all of these, there is a commonality or theme that's running through all these questions, most people want to know more about the book of Revelation. And so instead of going at these questions one at a time, so I've asked our author and historian, Reed Simonson, if he could give us tools or keys to help us understand Revelations in our own studies. Now, these tools and keys are in the book that he has written in the series. It's the sixth book in the series, Revelations. And you can find that on Amazon or if you have it free on Kindle Unlimited. But he's going to go over some of these tools so that as we study in preparation for the podcast that will
0: touch on Revelations, we're prepared. So Reed, can you give us these tools? Oh, sure. It's true that we're actually building towards that. There is a method to the madness in the Gospel Feast series. It actually was designed to eventually get people so that in thinking more Easternly and having a firm foundation of the Gospel, particularly from an Eastern perspective, they would be prepared to start understanding books like Revelation and certainly Isaiah, and I think the toughest book of all, Ezekiel, to be honest. I can understand with all that's going on right now and the many signs of the times that we're witnessing literally in front of our faces, that books like the book of Revelation become profoundly interesting and a source of comfort and knowledge to the people. So I'm happy to address that. I think the best way to prepare people for the book of Revelation is to discuss some Eastern thinking, to be honest.
1: Okay, so let's continue. Let's learn more about how to think Easternly.
0: It's important to know that the more difficult Jewish ancient books really have a poetic slant to them. John is what we would call a mystic, not in the evil sense, but in the more holy sense, as there are mysteries and concepts that belong to heavenly teachings that are not common. Isaiah is known as the great bard of Israel, but John was very much in that tradition as well. He was really an astounding writer who really understood Jewish poetics. So let's just take a moment and discuss poetry in Jewish thinking as a guide to help people prepare for a future in-depth study that we'll do on the book of Revelation. Okay, give us a primer. The Hebrews have always been an educated people. Adam knew how to read and write and taught his children. Modern anthropology, after Charles Darwin, has made its biggest error in assuming that those races of man which rejected the higher knowledge of Adam came before him because they were more primitive, meaning more animalistic and more ape-like. More primitive doesn't mean earlier, it just means stupider. Oh. From the account of Job, we have his lament about the uneducated masses of humanity during his day living in caves because they were too lazy to build a house or plant a garden. Today, we call his contemporaries cavemen and say that they were prehistoric. This is wrong. They have always been with us. Mankind still has those who prefer to live under a bridge and catch a squirrel or panhandle as opposed to gaining a college education and joining the rat race for mammon. Now, I'm okay with that. I believe it's man's right to live his life his way. Ten thousand years from now, our homeless campfires and the graffiti under our bridges might be viewed as man's first written words. Kilroy was here. Stupider is not earlier. Eastern thinking naturally lends itself to poetry, simile, metaphor, Homily and poetics are a natural way of describing one's internal world. Let's look at King David's beautiful lyric in Psalms 23, one: The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. This is beautiful Eastern thinking. The Lord is not a shepherd. Now I hear gasps, so stay with me. The Lord is not a shepherd, and you are not a sheep. I can use Westernisms here to speak the truth to you in a boring Western way. The Lord is actually a God, the Son of God to be exact. He is your Redeemer and elder brother. On earth, he resembled the family of David with ruddy good looks and was reportedly a little taller than the average man. He was kind to old and young alike. He healed the sick and gave people profound advice. All of this is true. David is saying all of that and more, but somehow... David's is more tender and more spiritually effective. Internally, in terms of emotional value, the Lord really is a shepherd. He's the best shepherd. So are we okay with that again? Okay, let's carry on. Let's take a short examination of Hebrew poetry in this Eastern Thinking lesson to think more like the Jews. We will see as we explore the book of Revelation that having a few tools in this regard will make the experience richer and closer to being read as John intended. I believe that much of the modern confusion over the book comes from attempting to comprehend John from an overly Western point of view. One of the poetic styles we will be reading in Revelation when we study it together is a form we call parallels. The idea is a simple one, and thus it is often missed by readers. The form takes the shape of two or more clauses that form a deeper, more complete third meaning when placed together. It's like saying the same thing twice, but a little differently. It's the juxtaposition of the two that gives this deeper meaning. I like to think of it as A plus B equals C. Here's an example from Isaiah. Isaiah 51, nine. Awake, awake! Put on strength, O arm of the Lord! Awake as in the ancient days, in the generations of old. Art thou not he that hath cut Rahab and wounded the dragon? This verse is structured in parallels. Note, awake, awake. Now that's an easy one. How awake should you be? Two, so very awake. Very awake. Ancient Hebrew had no real word for very, as we do in English. When they wanted you to be very awake, they would repeat it. Awake, awake. In English, we would say that the Lord is very holy. In Hebrew, we hear the angels declaring that he is... Holy, holy. Well, holy, holy, holy. Oh, that's the most holy. That's very holy. Okay, now, watch. Isaiah goes on to say, A clause, put on strength. B clause... O arm of the Lord, what is supposed to flex its muscle?
1: The arm of the Lord. And it was to be from your arm is where you have strength.
0: Here's another one. A clause, awake as in the ancient days. B clause, in the generations of old. How is the mighty strength of the Lord's arm desired to be? Like it was anciently. When? In the past generations. Isaiah is calling for the Lord to behave like he did long ago, as in the records and legends of his people. He is asking, where is the God who toppled the Tower of Babel, who broke the house of Pharaoh, who called Israel to the burning mountaintop of Sinai? Where is that mighty arm? A clause. Art thou not he that hath cut Rahab? B clause. And wounded the dragon? Who is Rahab? Rahab is the wounded dragon. How was he wounded? With a cut. The concept is exactly the same in more complex biblical poems. Let's try it out on David's Psalm 23. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Okay, now let's try it out and see if it doesn't add some richness by understanding the parallels here. A. The Lord is my shepherd. B. I shall not want. Why will David never want? Because he has a good shepherd, the Lord. Exactly. A. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. B. He leadeth me beside the still waters. What is the A clause and the B clause, and what do you get when you put these two together?
1: Well, the green pastures where he lies down are by still waters, and the Lord has led them to both.
0: Brilliant. A. He restoreth my soul. B. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. How does being led in the paths of righteousness restore your soul?
1: So, the Lord is leading us for the good of our soul, but at the same time, he is leading us for the good of his name. So, he... He is doing this to preserve among the nations his good name.
0: I think that's right. A clause, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. B clause, for thou art with me, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. How and where is David comforted? And what does knowing the Lord has a staff and rod to protect you from evil have to do with it? And why is David unafraid despite the terrible place he walks?
1: Well, because the Lord is with him. So even though he's in the worst possible place, hell or death, At the same time, he knows the Lord is with him. Staff and rod, we know, are the two tools a king uses for both mercy and justice. So because God is merciful and just and with him, he knows nowhere that he goes, including death, he has to fear.
0: Isn't that an interesting way of reading the scriptures? It makes you think, and that's what's so important about it. a clause: thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies— B clause, thou anointest my head with oil, my cup runneth over. What are the preparations the Lord has made for David?
1: Well, he has anointed him. So, in other words, set him apart to be special or a king. And he's given him more than he even needs, even though he's surrounded by those that would take it from him.
0: Absolutely. Good. A, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. B, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Why will David's days be full and happy? Well, that was an easy one, because his days will be with the Lord. That's how Hebrew poetry works. And when you just read it as it is, you read the beautiful words, but if you stop and put them together, that's the way the Jews would do it, and that's why they would understand and take meaning from it. When dealing with a passage that feels redundant but somehow lacking, just remember that A plus B equals C. Readers of the King James Bible have an advantage here. The scholars who worked over that version were well-educated in their day. They did speak Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. They had access to Martin Luther's translation as well, which is masterful. English as a language was particularly rich at the time as many useful and descriptive words were entering the language from classical Greek and Hebrew to French, Danish, and Latin as well. This is the reason that English today still uses parallel couplets to hammer home a point or add poetic richness. You will still hear people say things like, The day is warm and wonderful. The sun was bright and shiny. There is nothing like hearth and home. There are numerous phrases like this in English, kith and kin, safe and sound, up and away, just and true, muscular and strong. They can be traced explicitly back to the days of Shakespeare and the public reading of the Bible in English with all its parallelisms. Why is home so wonderful? Because it is where the warmth of the hearth is. Now, there's another one that's more complicated, known as chiasmus. Chiasmus is a more complex form of parallelism. Let's look at a very simple example first. Psalms 124, 7. Our soul is escaped as a bird out of the snare of the fowlers. The snare is broken, and we are escaped. The pattern to notice is this A. Our soul is escaped as a bird. B. Out of the snare of the fowlers. B. The snare is broken. A. We are escaped. Meaning is taken as one descends into the poem, reaching the moral core at the center. One then proceeds back out of the poem, reviewing the lessons that were led to the core, sometimes with a twist. Here is a longer example from the Book of Mormon.
1: Alma 34.9 For it is expedient that an atonement should be made. For according to the great plan of the eternal God, there must be an atonement made, or else all mankind must unavoidably perish. Yea, all are hardened, yea, all are fallen and are lost, and must perish, except it be through the atonement, which it is expedient should be made.
0: Notice the pattern with the core moral. A. For it is expedient that an atonement should be made. B. For according to the great plan of the eternal God, there must be an atonement made. C. Or else all mankind must unavoidably perish. Now, here's the moral core. D. Yea, all are hardened. D. Yea, all are fallen and are lost. Now we're going to come working our way back out. C. And must perish. B. Except it be through the atonement. A. Which it is expedient should be made. So the point here is that all men are lost. That's the moral. Why? Because they are hard-hearted and fallen thus an atonement is needed stated twice for emphasis like saying holy holy this is god's plan what was the plan the atonement why was this the only option because it was either that or perish that's how chiasmus works the book of mormon is full of these sermons and poems they are also richly peppered throughout the old testament the prophets like them because they reinforce important lessons through repetition In text, they clearly state the truth that God works and thinks in one eternal round. Even entire books can be written this way. Scholars have illustrated that the book of Daniel has an overarching chiasmic structure. The book of Revelation can be diagrammed chiasmatically. Some have suggested that Milton's Paradise Lost is really an epic chiasmus poem. That would not surprise me in the least. What most scholars miss, however, is that the chiasmic structure is really a living menorah, You'll remember that the menorah was a grand golden candelabra that stood in the Temple of Solomon. It had seven candlesticks branching out like tree branches from a center shaft, which was called the servant branch, the moral. When lighting the menorah, the priest would first light the center servant branch, and from there light all the others. The servant branch was also known as the Messiah's branch. As the teacher of righteousness, it was understood that by the light of the Messiah, all other truths would be known. Light is truth because it shows things as they really are. Dispensational Christians make note that Jesus came in the meridian, meaning middle, of Earth's heavenly week. The Christian custom of labeling all dates before Christ's birth as B.C. and all dates after him as A.D. harkens back to the same idea. It's chronological chiasmasity.
1: Okay, so, this should get people started to help understand the structure— of some of the writings in the book of Revelation and get them going. Now, the entire book can be found on Amazon, and it's called Revelation and the Mark of the Beast. Now, most questions, though, they were about the book of Revelation. Many people ask very specifically about the Mark of the Beast. So can we dive into that just a bit, that question now? Let's do.
0: I can see why that's a concern that a lot of people are having right now. The book of Revelation does talk about Many of the terrifying events that were coming to happen after what was called the half hour of silence. And a lot of people believe we're living in the half hour of silence now, and they do question and wonder about the mark and what's coming. I think it's important to understand that the mark of the beast, as John would have understood it, and as Joseph Smith would have explained it, in my opinion, is much bigger than what we really grasp today. Let me see if I can explain that just a little better. It's important to know that in the original versions of this revelation that's come down to us, the word that was used for Mark is actually a snake's bite. Oh wow, so that would change it significantly. I think it does. And and if you understand it symbolically and from an Eastern concept, that the great snake that you're to be weary of is Lucifer, his bite into your skin would leave a mark upon you, but the more dangerous part of that mark would be the poison that he would inject into your living system. So it becomes a mark of death.
1: Okay, so no, that's an interesting metaphor, because it would also tie with the many scary serpents and things that are found in the Revelation. So going through with that same theme, the Revelator was saying, if you have been marked by the devil, that's not as important as what he's put in you, what you've been injected or taken into yourself, so to speak. His
0: poison. You've taken his poison into yourself. And I think the most correct answer to the mark of the beast is it's connected to this concept that as we allow Satan's poison to get into us, we come to a realization that we cannot buy nor sell or function in the world that the beast controls without being marked. So it's a very big concept. I think it's larger than what most people suspect. It's important to understand that Satan's minions on the earth, his Satanists or Luciferians as we would call them, study all of the revelations and promises that have been made in all religions. They believe that by facilitating some or all of the prophecies given from ones such as Nostradamus, right up through biblical ones, even to Joseph Smith. By facilitating those prophecies and and revelations, they can attach their meaning to them and thereby rule the world.
1: So they're trying to co-opt things, regardless of the source. They just want to have their name attached to it, thereby being labeled as right or correct, or the
0: ones in charge. They believe that by fulfilling prophecy, they therefore also are able to control it. Ah, so they may be trying to
1: change destiny,
0: too. Well, what's so ironic, and this is the part that they don't really grasp, that the Lord will come out and say, thus and thus will happen. They read it and say, well, if that's what's going to happen, let's make it happen, and then we'll be on top of it, and then we'll have more power. But in doing so, they fulfill the word of the Lord and prove that he was right.
1: And it doesn't change the ultimate
0: outcome, one whit. No, it doesn't. It's really ironic when you stop to really put it through your mind. So the point that I'm trying to make is that, well, I think the most correct understanding of the mark of the beast is something that's already with us. They understand that by putting their meaning on top of it, they believe they'll be more successful in accomplishing it. So here's the point. Just as a snake's bite injects venom into you, A snake is like nature's needle. If you wanted to make a scientific snake fang, you could take a needle, which is hollow like a fang, and you could put something in it like a vaccine or some kind of a poison, and you could inject it into a person just as a snake bites you and injects you. So the part to watch with any of these things is, has any government entity or power over you said you shall not buy or sell or be able to function in society unless you receive a particular bite or mark. If they do that, you should pause and take notice that you may be getting marked under a beast's system.
1: That's interesting because a lot of people have expressed fear for this. And you've said earlier that this might be a bigger concept than what people are trying to drill down to one simple event, one simple idea. And they may have missed the overarching idea that being marked by beasts has been among us for some time we all carry the different marks that uh, have been left on us by organizations or or orders or governments things that we have to live by things that we are ordered to do and that really isn't the problem but it was the part you were saying it's the do you accept the venom do you live with it every day is it something that as we talked about earlier Love to make and love the lie.
0: Bingo, that is correct. Do you love the lie? Do you love the lie that unless you get licensed by the state to perform a function, you cannot buy or sell? Do you like the lie that unless you use particular greenbacks that are stamped in a certain way, you cannot buy or sell? Do you like the lie that unless you are injected with a particular vaccine or do a particular thing, you will not be allowed as a freeborn child of God? to buy or sell on the earth he made for your ancestors. That's the love and the lie and the venom. That is the poison that gets into your system that changes the way you think until you love the lie more than the truth. That is the ultimate mark. Okay. Be weary of any time when you are told, unless you do this, unless you take this mark upon you, you will not be allowed to buy or sell. That's a direct fulfillment of John's warning
1: perfect okay so john gave us general warning but then also specific language and that's why we love the revelator he's he's a man for all time i think the answers reed has given us will help us in our further studies of the scriptures specifically those that are written from an eastern mindset thank you all for your questions keep them coming we will try to provide answers every seventh episode and with that Uh, We are out of time. Thank you, everyone, for your questions, and we will continue our studies on the book of Jonah. And until then, may the Lord Jesus Christ be with you.